Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 20 to verse 33 again. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you that we're here this morning. We pray for those who couldn't make it with us this morning. We ask that you'd encourage them in a special way this morning, that you would remind them of your deep love for them, your steadfast love that we've been singing about this morning. And Lord, we pray that you just encourage them if they're, if they're forgetful this morning, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And Lord, I just thank you that we could be here this morning to study your word. I ask that you would speak to us and teach us and instruct us. Show us more and more of your ways and of your truth, Lord, and of what you've done in Christ. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we read this morning is a very important passage because in this passage, Jesus declares that his hour has come. The hour that he's always been saying in the Gospel of John is not yet come. Now he says it has come. And Jesus discusses the meaning and the significance of his hour in this passage. So can you see how important this passage is? It has come. The reason for my coming is here, and he starts speaking about it, what it means. From Jesus' words in this passage, we can take away two obvious things, or two unmistakable things right off the surface of it. Number one, Jesus' hour is the hour of his trouble, and Jesus' hour is the hour of his triumph. These are two things we can take away from his words. 
Last Sunday, we talked about it being the hour of his trouble. When the non-Jews came to seek Jesus, these are Greeks, um, that was a sign to Jesus that his hour had come, and he started to become troubled, anxious, frightened, distressed. And it's not because he was unhappy that the Greeks were seeking him, and it's not because he was unhappy that his hour had come, because we saw that his hour is the hour of his glorification, and it's the hour of his fruitfulness. But it was the hour of his death. He realized the coming of the Greeks signaled, it's come to the point of my death now. And it's not just any death that Jesus was going to die, right? But it was the death for the sins of the world. He, the Lamb of God, was going to take away the sins of the world by his sacrificial death. Where Jesus, the Bible tells us, on that day he was crucified, he became a curse the curse of God for us who were under the curse. I mean, it's an amazing thing. We can forget this, but you and I were under the curse. And the world that doesn't believe in Jesus is under a curse. That is, we're under the wrath of God on account of our sins. And Jesus became that curse for us. He took our sins. He took our place. And he satisfied the justice of God by paying the penalty in our place. And so... It was not just any death. And so he wasn't unhappy to do that for us. That wasn't why he was anxious and troubled at the coming of his hour, but it was because the cost of redeeming us was so severe. The New Testament talks about Jesus' death as propitiation, which means that it turns away the wrath of God. And that's a pretty significant thing. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in the other Gospels, he's saying, if it's possible, Father, Take the cup from me, the cup of your wrath. Because the turning away of the wrath of God is not something that happens in an unjust way or in some cheap way, but in a way that is enormously costly. So through his death, as we know as Christians, he enabled us to be saved from the wrath of God by, by faith alone, not by any works that we have to do. It's this totally free gift, easy for us to receive by faith, but it was extremely costly to him. And that's why he was troubled, because he, the cost terrified Jesus. And yet by seeing the terror of Jesus, we see also his love. Because basically he's troubled and frightened at what he has to do for us, and he still does it for you, because he loves you and he cares for you so much, he doesn't want you to perish. That's amazing. And that's what we looked at last week. But this... The words of Jesus here in talking about his hour, he doesn't only say it's the hour of his trouble, but also the hour of his triumph. That means a lot of good things are going to happen at this hour. Last week, again, I mentioned we looked at his glorification that will occur at this hour. But I'd like us this morning to look at verse 31 and 32. We're going to, in particular, uh, zero in on these two verses and notice how they start now so he uses a temporal marker word now he's referring to his hour the time has come the hour has come the reason I came into the world it's all come to this and now he says three things happen at this hour number one now is judgment upon the world Two, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And 
3, in verse 32, even though he doesn't use the word now, it's still at this time of his hour of his death. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So these are three things. The judgment on the world, the casting out of the ruler of the world, and drawing all men to himself. And I'd like us just to pause for a moment. Those are huge things, right? Those are big things. Think about it for a moment. Jesus is essentially saying that the history of the world has come to a monumentally important place at that moment. Huge, crucial things have arrived, is what he's saying. Amen? Crucial things have arrived. He's saying it's now. And I want us just to get that into our minds that when, when you think about Christ's hour, and he's always saying, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet, but now my hour has come. I don't want you to just think it's the hour of his death. It is that, but it's also the hour of these amazingly important and crucial things that come into effect by his death. So his death brings all these crucial things into effect. And that was when Jesus died. That is in the past. So I'd like us to consider this morning what does it mean that all these crucial things have occurred at that hour? What does it mean? Because it's important that we understand what he's saying here. He's saying, this is it. The purpose for my coming, here it is. And they're huge. So this sermon this morning is going to be a sermon where we need to put our thinking caps on, okay? I'm going to challenge you to think as we go through these things. They're not super obvious what he means, right? It's not immediately apparent what he means, so we're going to have to reflect on it. There's so much to say. You'll probably have questions. You can please talk to me afterwards if you want to talk about this more, because I can't say it all. There's going to be things that have to be omitted, and the sermon may be a little bit longer, but... I just ask for your patience and your attention and put on the thinking caps as we reflect on what could be more important than this. I mean, what could be more important than understanding the hour of Jesus and these huge things that have occurred according to his own words, okay? So I've divided the sermon up into three sections. First, we're going to talk about what does it mean that now judgment has come upon the world? What does that mean? Two, what does it mean that the ruler of the world has now been cast out? Or he says, now the ruler of the world will be cast out. What does that mean? And three, what does it mean that when Christ is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself? So we'll just take them one at a time. So first, what does it mean that now judgment is upon the world? Think about it for yourself. What, does anything immediately come to mind or... Does, does some thought or idea jump into your head? Now judgment is upon this world. I think it would be helpful to start by saying what it, what it doesn't mean. When Jesus says, now judgment is upon the world. What it doesn't mean. Here's one thing that it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean by saying, now judgment is upon the world, that judgment has finally come for the first time upon the world. Could you see how someone might read it that way? Now is judgment come upon this world. Like, finally, you know, God has not judged the world up to this point. This is the very first time he's judging the world. Before this, God's been absent. Before this, God's been oblivious. Before this, God hasn't been searching and weighing and testing and 
dealing out judgment. Now it's come for the very first time. Well, the Old Testament is full, brothers and sisters, of God's judgment. Amen? Not only with statements that say that God judges, but with the Old Testament overflows with examples that shows that God judges. True? So it wouldn't be right to say what Jesus means here is finally for the first time judgment has come. Jeremiah 17.10 says this, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That's something God does. I, the Lord, test the hearts. That's a judging activity. He's searching, he's weighing, he's considering in order to give to a man or a woman what they deserve. He doesn't say, I will do that one day, nor I started doing that when Christ came, but that's something that God does, and that's something that he's done for a very, very long time. True? Has he searched the hearts for a very long time? Has he weighed the hearts? Yes. Has he given to people what they deserve? Now that's a little bit more tricky, right? Because we can say, well, the history of man with God is one of amazing mercy and grace. He's not always giving us what we deserve. True, but does he ever deal out judgment upon people? Has he? Well, here are some examples. The fall of man. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God judged them, didn't he? And he punished them and cursed the earth on account of them. So there's a clear example of judgment. The flood is another clear example of judgment where, where God has judged in the past. He saw that the wickedness of man was great. He wasn't oblivious. He was weighing. He was testing. He saw it. It had come to a point, and he judged the earth with the flood. Sodom and Gomorrah is another example where God sends his envoy to examine and see if the reports are true. Obviously, God knows, but he still does that, and I'll get to that in just a moment why. But there he is testing and searching, and what does he do? He sends judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham even has to kind of talk to God and say, well, God, you are a just judge, and you'll always do right in your judgment. You wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, right? So Abraham knows God is a God who judges, but he's a righteous judge in what he does. And so he's talking to God on that basis. The entire history of Israel is one that demonstrates God's judgments, where God is weighing them and, and judging them throughout the his, their history with other nations punishing them because of their disobedience. The Exodus, he judged Pharaoh. Individuals within Israel, he judges. Achan, for example, when, when the people of Israel were coming into the promised land, he said, you're not to take anything from Jericho. And what did Achan do? He took something from Jericho and God put him on trial, pulled out the evidence. Here he is, he's guilty, and we're going to need to judge him. So that wrath is not upon Israel, right? Or King David. David, with his sins, God judged him as well. Doesn't have to be within Israel either. Belshazzar, Daniel chapter 5, you are weighed in the balance and found wanting, right? So here are clear examples where God has, before Jesus came, before Jesus' hour, been a God of judgment who has been active in that process of weighing and executing judgment. True? 
So when Jesus says, now is the judgment on the world, it's not for the very first time. God is a God who judges. And what that means is every single human on this earth should evaluate themselves and think about themselves as living under the eye of God, right? God is judging. God, is, God knows me through and through. And that means every single person on this earth should realize, man, I'm a wicked sinner in God's sight. And the fact that I'm here is because of God's mercy, right? Uh, because he really could deal out his, he could execute judgment on me because that's what I deserve. He's a God of mercy. And it should cause us to flee to Christ, amen? And not think, oh, God doesn't judge right now. Or God judged a long time ago. Or he's a God who judges and it should cause all of us to flee and obtain salvation in Christ. So that's one thing it can't mean. Judgment has finally come for the first time. Here's another thing that it can't mean. According to the Bible, though, the whole Bible taken together. Now is judgment upon this world. That can't mean there is no judgment in the future. Now is judgment, not later. You see how someone might take it that way? Now judgment is come, and it's complete, and it's exhausted at Christ's hour. Judgment now, not later. You could hear an objector saying, why are you Christians always talking about the coming judgment day, the future judgment day, when Jesus clearly said, now is judgment on the world in his day, at his hour. Why are you Christians always saying it's future? Jesus said it was then. But in answer to this objection, we would say this. Yes, Jesus did say it was then. Jesus is referring to his hour, not the future. But hear what he also said. And we don't even have to leave chapter 12 of John to see it. In your Bibles, look at verse 48. And Jesus says this. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So Jesus understands that there's coming a day of judgment, and on that day, the word that I spoke will actually stand up and accuse you on that day. Jesus, the apostles, were in perfect harmony with the prophets, that there's coming a day of judgment. And as Christians, that is what we believe, amen, that there's coming a day of judgment when God will judge the world one day, and that should cause every single person in this world to prepare for that and realize, my goodness, there's a day of judgment coming, and I'm a guilty sinner. I should flee to Christ for my salvation and, and, and take refuge in him, as Paul said, so that I will be found not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, which amounts to nothing, but be found in him having a righteousness that comes from God on that day. So we can't say, we can't interpret Jesus' words here to mean now and not later is the judgment on this world. There is a judgment in the future Jesus also recognizes. There's more to be said. Everyone agree or follow? Does that make sense? So what does it mean then? If, if, it's, if he's not saying judgment has come for the very first time, and he's also not saying now and not later. What does he mean? Well, when I was reading the commentaries on this, it's interesting how 
the commentators are essentially unanimous in their consensus of what this means, right from the earliest commentators of the church, basically to all the way to the modern commentators as well. And I, I agree with the consensus. And so here is the consensus view of what Jesus means. The judgment that Jesus is talking about here is not the execution of judgment on the world, or it is not God is going, it's not God doling out punishment and reward upon the world at that time. So when, he, when Jesus says, now is judgment on the world, he doesn't mean, now God will punish the world. Now God will reward the righteous. Now God will deal out what everybody deserves. But what Jesus is talking about is the verdict of God passed upon the world. The, ver- the verdict of God upon which the punishments and the rewards are based. In other words, God is going to one day deal out justice. God is one day going to judge the world in the sense of punishing and distributing justice to the world. He is going to do that. But what happened at Christ's hour was the ultimate confirmation of God's case against the world. This is the time when the world is weighed in the balances and found wanting. This is the hour when God makes his case publicly in the eyes of the whole world and shows that mankind and humanity is guilty. See, at the very hour that the world was putting Jesus on trial and they passed a verdict on Jesus, that was the very hour that the world being on trial passed a verdict against itself. And they condemned themselves by condemning Jesus. Whoever judges Jesus to be false, and this is true today, but this is the ultimate example of that or the ultimate exhibit of this. Whoever judges Jesus to be false judges themselves to be false. And whoever judges Jesus to be evil judges themselves to be evil. Christ's hour is the unmasking of the world where the world is seen for what it truly is. And in that hour, the world was not exonerated. It was exposed to be God-hating. And we see that the world hates truth and has chosen death. So the world is weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, I mentioned earlier that God sent an envoy to Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me go see how bad it really is, right? And whether they should be judged with fire and brimstone. Now, did God need to do that? No, because God knows everything. It's not that God actually didn't know what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he needed the angels to go and find out and report back to me so I can decide whether I'm going to judge them or not. But yet the Bible tells us that he did send them these angels to go find out how bad Sodom and Gomorrah was. And we might ask why. If God knows everything, why? John chapter 2 verse 25 tells us that Jesus knows every man. And he doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man. He knows what's in there, right? And it's interesting that that verse comes at a point where a whole bunch of people are believing in Jesus. So all these people are flocking and believing to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to entrust myself to you because I know it's not legitimate, right? 
And I don't need anyone to tell me because I know everybody. But by all appearances, it sure seemed like people were believing and flocking to Jesus. I think the solution to this question is why does God investigate Sodom? Or why does God make a case? You know, why does he build a case against us? Why does he weigh us in the balances if he already knows? And the answer is it's not for him per se, but it's for us. It's for heaven and earth. That God makes a case in the eyes of heaven and earth so that heaven and earth may see that his judgments are just when he deals out punishment against us. And so, like the envoy to Sodom, Jesus comes into the earth and Jesus is tried by the best of the best, by the ones that everyone thinks is the righteous and the knowledgeable and the ones who are in the light. They try Jesus, they find him to be false, they hate Jesus, they kill Jesus. And by doing that, God has made his case that humanity is in fact evil. For all to see. On the last day, on the day of judgment, everyone will see and know that God's judgments are just. No one's going to be confused saying, what's going on here? Everyone is going to know because all the evidence will be there for everyone to see. Now the benefit of this judgment in the sense of a verdict, in the sense of weighing and searching, that's the judgment we're considering here. The benefit of this judgment on the world at the time of Christ is not only for the last day, but it's also for today. And here's an amazing thing, an interesting thing. We as Christians, brothers and sisters, we as Christians have seen in a unique way the evil of humanity, haven't we? If we know the story of Jesus and we understand it and we've seen what God wants us to see, then we as Christians and only Christians uniquely understand the wickedness of humanity in a way that the rest of the world does not understand. True? So the rest of the world who doesn't believe in Jesus, who doesn't understand, they tend to think humanity is good, right? They tend to think that mostly, by and large, humanity is good and there's a few bad apples. And they are confused that why, why do you Christians insist that everyone is evil? Why do you as Christians, you don't just look at the, you know, the, the, the rapists and the kidnappers, yeah, you, you see them as evil, but you, you point at even the good guys and you say they're evil too. What's going on with you Christians, right? And the reason is, is because judgment came upon the world in the hour of Jesus and we've seen that judgment and the world hasn't seen that judgment. We as Christians have seen God's perspective on the matter, the underside of the rock, the depravity of every human heart, even the so-called righteous, and we've seen that the world hates God. That's what we've seen. Amen? The world hates God. The Anglican bishop, Kenneth Craig, makes this insightful observation. The Christian gospel can never be confronted by a range or reach of evil greater than is already present in the events of its own making. Let me read that again. The Christian gospel can never be confronted by a range or reach of evil greater than is already present in the events of its own making. 
What does he mean, the events of its own making? Meaning, the, the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus made the Christian gospel, made this proclamation, made, this, made, made Christianity. And the making of Christianity exhibited the greatest evil of all time, the, the rejection of the light, the rejection of the truth of God. And so what he's saying is Christians can't confront a greater evil than that. The, the greatest evil is already in their origins, in their gospel, in the making of their gospel. That you can never read on the in the newspaper or online an evil greater than what's been exhibited in the hour of Jesus. Amen? ISIS doesn't surprise us. Right? Hitler doesn't surprise Christians. Hitler does not destroy faith in humanity for Christians because Christians did not have faith in humanity to begin with. Right? Yes. And the world looks at ISIS and they, Hitler and they say, how can people do this? I don't understand. It's so wicked. I, don't, I, I thought we humans are good. And we Christians realize, no. That's just, an, that's just an expression of the evil of the human beings. In fact, that's not even the worst expression of the evil of human beings. That's a lesser evil. The greater evil has already been done and seen in the hour of the judgment of the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? So we are not as Christians swayed or, or um, sucked into the bloggers online or the religious leaders of our day who try to say, I think humanity is getting better and better and Everyone's essentially good. There's a few bad apples that are surprising to us. We as Christians have seen the judgment upon the world that came in the hour of Jesus' death. Number two, what does it mean that now the ruler of this world is cast out? Now, Jesus makes another monumental statement. This is a huge statement, isn't it? I mean, this should make everybody go, what is Jesus talking about here? The ruler of the world is cast out now? What's going on? Carl Henry put it this way, this lifting up of the Son of Man is the very crisis of human history itself and seals the doom of Satan. In other words, this is really big stuff. It's very interesting that the Gospel of John, I've mentioned this in the introduction of our series, the, jo the Gospel of John contains how many exorcisms? Exorcism stories of Jesus casting demons out. Zero. Zero. Now remember, the Gospel of John has a, has a very specific focus and purpose. The Synoptic Gospels record Jesus' ministry. They want to give us the overview. That's their focus. That's their purpose and they record lots of exorcisms. Zero exorcisms are recorded in the Gospel of John except for this massive exorcism right here. And this tells us what John's focus is. He's, he, he doesn't deny Jesus cast out demons. It's just not his focus. His focus is on what's the essential point and meaning of it all. What's the theological crux of what's going on here? And here it is. Jesus is performing an exorcism, the greatest exorcism that could be conceived the prince of the world. That's referring to Satan as the ruler of the world. And Paul talks about Satan as the ruler of the world. The Bible recognizes this. He is cast out. But what does it mean? 
Cast out from where? Does Jesus say where Satan is cast out from? He doesn't. He just says, now is the ruler of the world cast out. He doesn't say where from, but it seems to be comprehensive, doesn't it? It seems to be pretty definitive and final. Now is the, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And although he doesn't say from where, it seems definitive and final, which means we shouldn't probably interpret Jesus' words to mean now Satan will be cast out of one place to go to another place. He'll need to be cast out of that place too to go to another place, and then finally he'll be cast out of that place. So he's not really finally, ultimately cast out, but now that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying, even though he doesn't say. I get a sense that it's more comprehensive. But how we understand this verse or this saying will affect how we understand Satan's current role in the world, true? So this is going to be a pretty important statement to interpret. I mean, what do you think Satan's role is in this world? And how does it, how does it relate to this, this verse? Does it? So it's very significant what he says here. I'd like to explore four possibilities, four in interpretations. And we'll start with the extreme ones and move to the credible ones. Okay? But it's important to start with the extreme because the credible interpretations are really modifications of these extreme ones. So number one, here's one way that someone could conceivably interpret this saying. When Jesus died, or the, the hour of his death, when Jesus died, Satan was cast out. And by that means, completely and comprehensively, Satan is now totally inoperative. Why are you worrying about Satan? He's cast out. Don't you believe Jesus? Nobody has to worry about Satan anymore. He's gone. Because Satan cast him out. That would be an extreme interpretation of this saying, right? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. It would be wrong for us to read that and say, okay, he's gone. I don't need to think about him or deal with him anymore. Why? Because the whole rest of the Bible vitigates against that perspective, right? So that would be an extreme one. Here's a second interpretation. When Jesus died, Satan was not cast out at that time. But although Satan maintains his position exactly as before and operates exactly as before, so nothing seemed to change when Jesus died. He continued functioning in the same way and operating the same way. The death of Jesus sealed his future doom and guarantees that he will be cast out later on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm sure you're all familiar with the game of chess. Um, my favorite board game. And... Uh, this is an experience you can find in other situations, but I'm familiar with the game of chess, and it's an experience that happens in the game of chess all the time. Now, how does the game of chess end, or how do you win in the game of chess? Checkmate, Checkmate the king, right?
And I won't go into exactly what that means and looks like, but you got to checkmate the king. Okay, I will. You put a piece that challenges the king and the king can't get out of it. But have you ever seen a game or played a game where the game, is, the game comes to an end and the checkmate hasn't happened, right? It's a foregone conclusion, exactly. So you're playing the game and no one's put anyone in checkmate, but a particular move is made that seals the fate of the game. And sometimes one player only realizes it and sometimes both players realize it. And when both players realize it, they say the game is over, right? And so you wrap up the game, even though the checkmate hasn't actually occurred. Or maybe only one person realizes it. The other guy keeps playing and he doesn't know the game is actually over. And the guy who knows it's over says, I've got him, right? Or he says to himself, the game is over, he's lost, right? Even though the game isn't over, he hasn't technically lost. But, he's, but the winner says to himself, I've won, I've won. And so that, this interpretation is like that interpretation. Jesus is basically saying, now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Meaning, not at that precise time will he be cast out, but, say, but that God has made the, the decisive move and it's over. He's clinched the victory and Jesus declares the game is over and that he's won. So to understand this interpretation is nothing actually changed in how everything's functioning except Jesus sealed the end uh, at that time. The third interpretation is a modification of the first view, okay? Which is this. When Jesus died, Satan was cast out at that time. So Satan enjoyed a position and a power and an authority. He was the ruler of the world until Jesus came and died. When Jesus died, Satan lost that. He was cast out of whatever position he had at that time, 2,000 years ago. However, although Satan no longer rules and he's no longer in power, Satan continues to run a limited yet substantial sabotage operation in this world. So we still have to deal with the devil. We still have to think about the devil. We still have to encounter the devil, be on guard uh, from the devil. But things have really changed in that he's not in the position he used to be. He's now on the run. He's now in the trenches. He's now waging rebellious guerrilla warfare, but things have actually changed since Jesus came and died. And one day he'll be completely crushed on the basis of what Jesus did. Now, that is a position that many Christians hold. That is the, that is the position when, when Christians think about Satan and his role in the world, they think like that. They think, Satan used to be kind of the, he used to be the ruler of the world. He used to be powerful. He used to be in the sphere, you know, in a particular sphere. He's not there anymore. He's on the run. He's defeated. He's running. But he's still a problem and we have to deal with him. But he's not in charge. He's not ruling the place. So that's a, that is a position you'll encounter in the Christian church. Is that how you think about it? And of course, they would, Christians would point to this verse as the basis for that, or one of the basis for that. Here's the fourth view, which is a modification of the second view. Everyone still following me? 
The fourth view is like the second view. When Jesus died, Satan was not cast out at that time. Nothing seems to have changed when Jesus died. He's still the ruler of the world. He's still in power. He still maintains that position. And like the game of chess, Jesus sealed his doom when he died. When Jesus said, now the ruler of the world is cast out, he means, I've got him, the game's over. But he wasn't actually cast out. However, we can say more than that. We can say this, that some things did change because of the death of Christ. We don't have to say that the effects of Jesus' death are all awaiting the future, as if it's only in the future when what Jesus did uh, will have present effect. But believers in Jesus have been currently and presently delivered from Satan's rule and power, and they run a limited yet substantial sabotage operation against Satan's kingdom. Okay, so do you see the difference? So this idea is Satan still rules the world. Satan's still in his position of power. He will be cast out in the future because Jesus did a move that sealed his fate. But in the meantime, believers in Jesus, even though they still live in the devil's world, even though they still live in the enemy territory, they have been delivered from his kingdom and they're running the guerrilla warfare sabotage operation in this world. Does that make sense? So it's not Satan who's running the sabotage operation. It's believers who are. And Satan will be crushed in the future on the basis of what Jesus has done. Colossians 1.13 tells us that, that Christ has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the devil into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Uh, that God has delivered us into the kingdom of the son that he's loved. And Paul was sent, Paul's mission was to, was to bring the gospel to people, he says in the book of Acts, and to turn them from the power of, de- of the devil to the power of God. Amen? In other words, Satan still has a kingdom. Satan still has a power. And Jesus said, if Satan casts out Satan, If Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom is going to come to nothing. And obviously he's not doing that. So in this view, Satan continues to rule in this world. He continues to have his kingdom. And yet we as believers exist in this world. We experience his attacks. We experience his persecutions. But as Christians, we know he is ultimately defeated and that his fate is sealed and that we have been delivered from his power. We have been delivered from his accusations. We have been delivered from his authority. And this is a view that many Christians take as well. And this is the view that I take and believe Jesus is meaning here in this passage. So I take this fourth view. And the reason I take this fourth view is because I believe when you look at Scripture as a whole, when you look at the collective teaching about Satan and his rule in the Bible, it seems to me that Satan still is ruling this world. God is, of course, the ultimate ruler, but God has allowed Satan to have his kingdom and his rule on this earth. And we are just passing through, right? We're just sojourners. We're just guests here. We're just in enemy-occupied territory awaiting the coming 
of Jesus to completely overthrow Satan and set up his kingdom on the earth. That's what I see from the rest of the Bible. And so I interpret this as the fourth view. Notice Jesus doesn't say, now is the ruler of the world cast out, but now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Because of his hour, Satan will be cast out. It's guaranteed and the victory is sure. I think uh, Martin Luther's words summarize well our experience in this world. I quote, The world is a den of murderers subject to the devil. If we desire to live on earth, we must be content to be guests in it and to lie in an inn where the host is a rascal whose house has over the door this sign or shield for murderers and lies. It's interesting that Luther says that living in this earth is like living in an inn that's got the devil as its innkeeper. It's not a nice place to be. And yet the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed and has rescued us from the accusations of the devil. And this is the power of the devil is that he accuses us. He brings before God accusations. He holds up before us our sins. And he says, this person is unrighteous and wicked and sinful and they deserve death and they deserve to be in my power. And you know, his accusations aren't false. He can point to my life and your life and he can show God and say, Look how disastrous this person's moral life is, right? Look how evil Eli is. Look at the sins he commits every day. And all of it's true. He's got a real good case against me. I mean, the judgment is, the verdict has been passed against me. I'm an evil person. But because of Jesus' death and because of his blood and because I put my faith in Jesus Christ, even though those accusations are true, Jesus has paid for my sins and his blood is what covers me and, and the, the Lord can rebuke the devil and say, no, you have no authority over this person. You have no power of this person. This person is not anymore in the domain of death. They are in the domain of life because their sins are forgiven and they are righteous and blameless in my sight through the blood of Christ. Not through any works or good deeds or goodness I have, but because of Christ in him alone. Amen? So although I live in this crazy earth and experience the devil's domain, I'm actually not a part of it and not subject to it. Praise God. And as believers, not only do we have that defense against Satan's accusations, we live in this life and in this world waiting and expecting the set time to come when God will overthrow Satan and take the world back. That is an awesome hope that this verse declares. When Jesus tells us to, when he talks about his hour and he says, consider what this hour is all about, we learn by what Jesus did on the cross, we know that Satan's time is, is, is over, that he's going to take the world back from Satan. What an awesome hope we have in the death and the hour of Jesus. So this is one important way how the hour of Jesus' death is the hour of Jesus' triumph and the hour of Satan's defeat. And now the last point this morning, what does it mean that Jesus will draw all men to himself? Now look, let's look at verse 32. Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth. Now verse 33 tells us that this is a direct reference to his crucifixion. So Jesus is literally meaning 
I will physically and bodily be raised up from the ground upon the cross, suspended in midair on a tree. And Jesus says, when this occurs, something else will occur. Now, most commentators point out this is also an ambiguous reference. It's not very clear that he's referring to his death, even though John says in verse 33 he is directly referring to his death. But it could also be an indirect reference to his glorification. When I'm lifted up, when I'm glorified, when I'm exalted before the eyes of the world, and when I reveal to the world who God is and glorify God's name, the character of God, and reveal to the world the love of God and the justice of God in my death, then I will draw all men to myself. And it's probably best to take them together that he's referring directly to his crucifixion and indirectly to the glorification that occurs by the crucifixion. They're inseparable. And he says when that occurs, he will draw all. Now what does that mean? Now, very briefly, we have three well-known options here of what this could mean. Three well-known options. Here's number one. The universalist option, which means the universalist reads this and takes this to mean everyone is going to be saved. Every human, every man, woman, and child all humanity will be saved. Why? Because Jesus says here that when he's lifted up, he will draw all to himself, and that all means all. And so everyone is coming to Jesus, and everyone will eventually be saved. That's how a universalist reads this. So what do we think of that? You could, I guess, from this verse argue that. But when you consider all the rest of Scripture, you realize actually the Bible says that many um, many will perish and very, only a few will be saved, right? And the Bible gives us views of the judgment day when God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous and the righteous will inherit the blessedness of the kingdom while the unrighteous will be cast out, right? So when you take it all together, we can't accept the universalist interpretation. Here's the second interpretation that's, that's well known. We can call this the general drawing view. And what this interpretation sees here is that when Jesus is lifted up on the cross and when he manifests to the whole world God's salvation and God's name and God's character, he will call and invite and summon everyone to himself. He makes the appeal for all to come. Every man, every woman, every person, he is drawing to himself by holding up who God is and saying, come, come. Now this interpretation doesn't mean that everyone will come. It just means that he invites everyone to come and pleads with everyone to come, seeks to draw everyone to himself, but whether they come or not, this verse is not talking about that. In other words, this is not a statement about Jesus successfully drawing people to himself. It's a statement about Jesus seeking to draw people to himself. And that's a view that many people hold of this verse. And why many people hold that view is because that is a true thought. Amen? Is it not true that Jesus Christ calls and summons and appeals and invites everyone to come to him and have salvation? Yes, that is true. 
And that is what, as Christians, we continue to do. That's part of our mission as a church and our mission as Christians is to go into the world and proclaim the gospel and call people to Jesus and seek to draw them to Christ. So that view is certainly a true idea. Absolutely. The question is, is that what Jesus means here? Even though that's a true idea, is that the meaning of this statement? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Is he simply meaning when I'm lifted up, I'm going to be calling everyone to myself? appealing to them to come. But it's certainly a true idea. And please, as Christians, we are exhorted by God to go and to call people to come. So that should be part of our life and our mission is spreading the good news. Amen? I just want to remind us that that is what, one, of the, one of the important reasons we are here in this world, running that sabotage, sabotage mission in Satan's world, calling them to Christ and salvation. The third view is this. We can call it the effectual drawing view. And if, if any of this sounds familiar, it's because we've talked about this before in the Gospel of John. There's other verses that deal with this question. The effectual drawing is, view is this. When Jesus is lifted up and crucified, and when he manifests the love of God and the righteousness of God and the name and character of God, he will effectually and successfully draw all that the Father has given him to himself. They will come. In other words, this is a statement of what is actually going to occur, not just what Jesus is going to seek to do, but he will draw all to himself. All is actually going to come to him. But it's not a universalist idea. It's all that the Father has given him. They will come when he's lifted up. This interpretation would be connected to Jesus' words in chapter 6, where Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And no one can come to me unless the Father draws, right? And the reason you don't come to me is because it hasn't been given to you of the Father, because all whom the Father gives me will come. It would be connected with chapter 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They do not follow a stranger. And Jesus says in chapter 10 that he will call to his sheep and gather his sheep and they will all come and there will be one shepherd and one flock, right? He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. They will hear my voice and come and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 52, we have this statement. If you would turn there with me in 11, verse 52. This is um, John's interpretation of Caiaphas's prophecy. It says that Jesus was going to die for the nation of Israel and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, when we looked at this passage, I argued this was an, a statement of what Jesus will succeed to do through his death. This is the view that I take, that, Je- that Jesus, when he says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself, he's referring to an effectual drawing of all that the Father has given him. But the question is, why does it say all men then? It seems to be broader than that. But in the Greek the word men is actually not there. It's simply the word all, and the word men has been provided by the translators. 
So I will draw all to myself. Well, the question is, all what? It certainly could mean all men, women, everybody. It could mean that. And it certainly could also mean, particularly, he will draw all of God's sheep or all of um, that the Father has given him. So the question, the, the question is, what does the context indicate? Because the context must decide. And as I've given my reasons, I think the context indicates this is an effectual drawing. So I favor the third view. And how does it work? I just want to say this in closing. How does God draw us by lifting up Jesus? Well, as I said, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he supremely reveals the glory of the Father. In the cross of Jesus, we see, like we see nowhere else, the supreme revelation of the sinfulness of mankind. We see that humanity is evil and that human righteousness is futile. That is why Jesus died. So the cross is a declaration. There is no one righteous and no one can possibly be righteous apart from this sacrifice. It is also a declaration of the grace of God, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So no one is righteous and yet God loves this wicked, evil world that hates him so much that he provided Christ. So it reveals his love in his grace. In other words, it proclaims who God is. The cross is the supreme shining of the light, the truth of who God is and who man is. The cross is the torch that was held up 2,000 years ago, and the cross either repels people or it attracts people. They either come to the light, confessing their sin and saying, I need this, I need Jesus, I need grace, and this is beautiful, and this is true, or it's, I hate that, I don't want that, get that away from me. And the commentator Frederick Dale Brunner puts it this way, the hoisting, meaning the lifting up, the hoisting is really the single most magnetic power on the planet, attracting the filings of human hearts all over the world like no other magnetic force in the universe. The cross is world's, the cross is world history's most magnetic power and even gravity cannot rival it. That's how powerful the revelation is of God is in the cross. It's so powerful it draws, but I would also add it's so powerful that it repels. It's like the strongest magnet in the world. It will pull the metal pieces to it, but it will also repel those pieces that are not, um, that are hostile to it as well. And this is what I think Jesus means here in verse 32. The hour of his death is the hour of his triumph because it accomplishes these three important, monumental, crucial things. And I hope you realize, when you think about Jesus' hour, don't just think it's the hour of his death. It's the hour of these huge things that occur. Number one, it's the hour that reveals, ultimately, and makes God's case that, human, that humanity is wicked and evil. It's the hour of judgment on the world. It accomplishes that. It publicly displays how wicked humanity is. Number two... It's the hour in which Satan is spoiled and defeated. It's the hour in which Satan's rule is doomed. And so it is the hour of our hope. Now we are no longer in the dominion of Satan. As believers, we've been translated out of it because of the hour of Christ's death. 
and we look forward to the full consummation of that. So it's a, it's a tremendous hour of victory for us. It proclaims the sinfulness of humanity, victory over the devil, and number three, it, when we see it rightly, draws us to Christ because it reveals to us the beauty and the majesty of who God actually is. And we're drawn to him. It brings us to him. So in light of this hour, we ought to bow our heads and worship the lamb who was slain for accomplishing these crucial and amazing things. Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would take these words this morning that we read and that we reflected on and that you would fill us with a new appreciation of the hour of Jesus' death, that we wouldn't just glance over those words, Lord, in the Bible, but we would see that truly history came to an epic-changing moment when Jesus died. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to learn the lessons of the death of Christ and what occurred there. We thank you, Lord, for revealing to this world our wickedness. We thank you, Lord, for defeating Satan at his own game. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a deliverance from his tyranny. And we thank you, Lord, um, for revealing to us your great grace and love. And that's why, we, that's why we've come to you, Lord. That's why we believe, because we have hope in your goodness and in your loving kindness. That's why we've come, Lord. Why we stay is because you have the words of eternal life. You are so good. You are so beautiful to us, and we love you. And we praise you for the revelation of who you are in your Son. And we just pray that every day, Lord, we'd, we'd see these things, we'd be transformed by them, and we'd continue to offer you the sacrifices of praise for the amazing, wonderful things you've done for us. And thank you, most of all, for the blood of your Son and the forgiveness of sins, that no matter how wicked we are, Lord, we thank you that we have hope and forgiveness and grace in your blood. We praise you, Lord, and I give you thanks. And thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.